Previously, we were, before Christmas, for most of last year, we were in the book of Acts, Luke's account of the first 30-year history of the church. Amazing story, recounting the story from how Jesus gathered his disciples after his resurrection and before he returned to his Father's glory, told them to expect power from on high, how they, in Jerusalem, in an upper room, 120 of them, uh, praying and waiting. The Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost. They're filled with power. They go out into the streets proclaiming the good news of Jesus in languages that God gives them, speaking the language of the nations. There's a huge outpouring of God's blessing. 3,000 people respond in faith on that day of Pentecost. And then, bang, away we go. Uh, and uh, the story runs and runs. And in Jerusalem, there's great impact of the church, the first church, with no other believers, no other Christians in the whole world, but a bunch of Christians in Jerusalem, the first church formed. And then God pushes those disciples out and they start to go to the nation and to the nations. And we rushed on to the story where uh, Luke, who is traveling with Paul, begins to focus particularly on the ministry of the apostle Paul. And we finished on December the 9th with Paul in Ephesus. And we're going to pick that up again today and uh, planning to finish off the book of Acts uh, between now and Easter. So, first thing is that Jesus... Is this going to buzz, John? Did you come and fiddle with my pocket again? Let me try again. Is that all right, Samuel? Okay. So, first thing is that Jesus creates uproar. Jesus creates uproar. In the UK of today, Christianity can often uh, seem to be pretty neutered. I think I'm going to swap. In the UK today, Christianity can often seem pretty neutered. It can seem something which is pretty tame, pretty safe, pretty inoffensive, inconsequential, but that's not how Christianity looks in the stories that we read about in the book of Acts, where we left off on December the 9th with Paul and Ephesus. Where we leave the story is that there has been a riot provoked in the city of Ephesus because of the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is no small-scale thing, but... Uh, says the whole town, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 29 says, Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The whole city was in an uproar because of the preaching of the good news about Jesus Christ. And it says that they poured into the city stadium, a stadium which seated 25,000 people. So this was no small thing. There was a huge crowd that poured into the stadium in Ephesus, dragging some of the Christians with them, saying, These people causing trouble all over the world, and they're causing trouble here as well. And the reason for that is that the power of Jesus is threatening to all other powers. In the city of Ephesus, uh, the preaching of the good news about Jesus was threatening. It was threatening spiritually, and it was threatening politically, and it was threatening economically. There were people who made money out of the worship of the god Artemis. They, uh, there was this guild of craftsmen who would make idols, which they'd sell, and people would buy as part of their worship to this goddess. And so many people were coming to faith in Jesus, that whole, the whole economic basis, the whole economy of Ephesus was under threat because people were no longer worshipping this goddess in the same way, and no longer buying these idols in the same way. And the whole political and cultural and economic shape of Ephesus was being turned upside down because of the message that Paul was preaching and the way that people were responding to that. Jesus was creating an uproar. Jesus threatens all the other powers 
economic powers, political powers, spiritual powers. And Jesus wants to mess with your life as well. When we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we come to Jesus, there's a transformation which happens to us, a transformation that is required, a transformation of our values. We start to look at things differently, have different uh, ways that we, uh, we think, our beliefs change, our actions adjust. There's a transformation which happens when you meet Jesus, when you hear the gospel, when you respond to him, because Jesus calls into question our own self-sufficiency. Jesus calls into question our ability to be Lord and Master of our own lives. Jesus calls it all into question because he would say that he is the only true king. He's the only true authority, and he wants to have authority in your life, in my life. And when that happens, everything else must bow before him, and that means everything has to change. The values we have, the beliefs we have, the way we act, they all begin to change because we see that Jesus is Lord, and the things that we believe, the things that we value, the way that we act, all have to line up with him now and his call on our lives. So don't come to Jesus looking for a quiet life. This is your maybe your first time in church. Maybe you don't yet know Jesus. Maybe you're curious. Maybe you're thinking about going on the beliefs course. Great, but don't come to Jesus expecting a quiet life. Jesus promises to bring us peace. He gives us peace because he reconciles us to God. He deals with our sin. He brings us into relationship with the Father in heaven, which is good. But he doesn't bring us into a quiet life. No, Jesus causes uproar. That's what happened. It's what happens again and again in these stories, not just in Ephesus, but wherever the apostles go, riots tend to follow. An uproar is caused by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's just how it is. That's the first thing. Jesus creates uproar. Second thing is that Jesus' people need encouragement. Acts chapter 20 verse 1 says this, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. There's only going to be one picture today, a map just so you can orientate yourself and see the different places I'm talking about. The uh, greenish line is where Paul had set off from Antioch to travel out, and then the uh, purple dash line is, is tracing his journey, which he's now on. He's going to be heading back to Jerusalem and the stories that we're looking at today and the next couple of weeks. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. The, the us is Paul and Luke. Luke who's writing this story and is traveling with Paul. But we, Paul and Luke, sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now, Paul has been in the city of Ephesus for three years and he leaves after the riot, probably in the summer of AD 55, and he revisits the churches that he's previously founded. Before he got to Ephesus, he'd been traveling around the Aegean, he'd been preaching the gospel, 
going from town to town, city to city, starting church after church. And having left Ephesus in the summer of AD 55, he goes back and revisits the churches he has previously founded. And he's accompanied by this gang of friends who come from a number of these different churches. They're kind of the fruit of his ministry, this gang of mates who he is traveling with. And when you read the stories of the first church, you always see this, that Paul and the other apostles always travel in team. It's always a team activity that they're engaged in because when we come to Jesus, we're brought into community. We're brought into family. And so Paul's always traveling with his friends. And as he travels around, well, first of all, it says that he encourages the believers in Ephesus, then he leaves them, and then he visits these other places, and he speaks many words of encouragement. Speaks many words of encouragement. Now, all of us need encouragement. This is a a basic human need, the need of encouragement. Sure, we can live without it. It's uh, not like food, where if you don't have food after a couple of months, you'll die. It's not like water, where after a few days, you'll die if you don't have water. But if you don't have a fairly regular diet of encouragement, that's going to have consequences. Without encouragement, we tend to kind of shrivel up and harden emotionally. And encouragement is like the sunshine. When we're encouraged, it's like you suddenly get a ray of sun falling down. It causes things to open up. It causes us to open up. It causes us to stand taller and feel stronger. And what Paul does as he goes around these churches is to speak many words of encouragement. It's like he's bringing a sunshine into these places. He wants people to stand up to be encouraged in God because you need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged. Christians need encouragement. We Christians need to be encouraged because we are engaged in a spiritual fight. Wherever Jesus goes, there's an uproar. Jesus causes an uproar. Why? Because he's threatening to the other powers. That means that we're engaged in a spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare and a spiritual fight. That means that things can get us down. It means we have an enemy who wants to drag us down. And so one of the ways in which we need to fight is by speaking encouragement to one another. That's what Paul does as he goes from church to church. He speaks many words of encouragement. And so can I encourage you, if you're part of this church, if you're someone who loves Jesus, let's decide to be encouraging. It's not always very easy to do. It's something actually you have to practice and grow in. Let's, let's make a conscious decision this week. At some point this week, I'm going to intentionally, deliberately look for an opportunity to encourage somebody. It's not something which comes naturally to you that can feel a bit false, a bit difficult, but kind of even plan it in. I'm going to choose to find somebody and I'm going to encourage them. You can, you can plan for that. That person looks like he's encouraged. What can I do? What can I say? What words of encouragement can I bring? That's what the Apostle Paul did. He spoke many words of encouragement. Why? Because the churches needed to hear it. They needed to know encouragement. Why? Because wherever Jesus is, an uproar follows because we're in spiritual conflict. If you're in a fight, you need to be encouraged. And So let's encourage one another. Now these verses I just read, the first six verses of chapter 20 of Acts, just, just a short paragraph, but actually covers about two years in the ministry of Paul. This is about a two-year period in which Paul is traveling around speaking many words of encouragement. And over two years, you can speak many words of encouragement. And then at the end of this two-year season of traveling around, encouraging the churches, he's been in Philippi, and then he leaves for another city, the city of Cheras, back across 
uh, the other side of the Aegean Sea, and he leaves at the time of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And the Festival of Unleavened Bread was part of the bigger feast of Passover, which happens in spring. And so this is probably spring in the year 57 that Paul and his friends leave Philippi and head for Troas. And when we get to Troas, next thing we see is that encouragement can come in very unexpected ways. This is what it says. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. The first day of the week is Sunday. It's the day of creation, and it's also the day of the resurrection. Jesus was raised to new life on Sunday, the first day of the week. This is resurrection day. And that's why from the very first days of the church, as recounted here, and why through to today, this is why we gather on Sundays, because this is the Lord's Day, this is Creation Day, this is Resurrection Day. And Paul gathered with the church in Troas on Resurrection Day to break bread, to celebrate communion. That's what Christian services often are focused, should be focused towards. It's about communion with God. It's about proclaiming what Jesus has done. We take the bread, we take the wine, we proclaim and remember the death of Christ, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the certainty of his coming again. That's what Paul and these believers in trust did. That's what we're going to do here this morning as well. And that is a means of encouragement. As we break the bread, as we take the wine, we're to be encouraged together in Christ. Why? Because he's not dead, he is alive. What is today? It's resurrection day. The sun is shining. Hallelujah. Let's encourage one another. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. No concerns about the children's work here. No limits of time. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. They were greatly encouraged. Now, Paul has lots to say because he's only going to be in Troas a short time. He's leaving the next morning, and so he talks and talks. And there's this young man called Eutychus, and Eutychus actually means fortunate or lucky. And uh, the term that's used as young man means that he was probably somewhere between the ages of 8 and 14. So probably, let's say, his early teens, this boy who's in this room. And uh, it's a crowded room. All the believers in Charas are crowded into this upper room in, in, this, in this building, up on the third story. And it says that there are many lamps lit and, of course, these would have been oil lamps, so it would have been smoky and deoxygenating. And we're now into the spring, maybe April, and that time of year on the Aegean coast, the weather's beginning to warm up. So you can imagine maybe it's a warm night, lots of people in this room, very stuffy, lots of lamps, oil lamps, sucking the air out of the room. And uh, it says that he's sinking. Sorry, Anne, can I adjust your stick? You can imagine that he's sitting in, in the window, and you can imagine that it's a kind of a deep windowsill in which he's sitting, and he's sinking, and you know the feeling. I know you do, because some of you do this when I'm speaking, <laughs> even though I don't speak as long as Paul did. 
that feeling of sinking. It's that feeling when you're listening and trying to listen, and you keep shifting around and sitting a bit further forward and pinching yourself, but the head's... <laughs> going. It's sinking. And you, that happens, and you, I must stay awake. I must stay awake. And, and it happens... I've been in some Christian conferences after long days of listening to teaching and it's dark in a cavernous room with lots of people and stuffy and somebody's talking and they're talking a long time. And I know the feeling of sinking and you can imagine Utica sitting there in the window and of course there's no glass because nobody has glass, far too expensive. Maybe there's a wooden shutter, maybe he's kind of leaning against it and he sinks and he falls into sleep and falls out of the window. This is a major health and safety issue in the first century. A lack of suitable surrounds for the window. Gives into sleep, gives into gravity. And imagine the scene that everybody rushes down the stairs to find Lucky lying crumpled on the floor with no sign of life. Lucky has not been so lucky. He's pretty unlucky. He's lying dead on the floor, and this is a pretty dramatic way to end a service. Imagine if it happened in our context, somebody dies in a meeting, which sometimes does happen, hopefully not as a consequence of the preaching, but it causes a bit of, being British, it would be probably fairly discreetly dealt with. We'd get up and we'd sing a song, we'd wait for the paramedics to come in and carry them out, and it would all, most of us would pretend we hadn't noticed, because it would be too embarrassing. But... This isn't 21st century Britain, this is 1st century Mediterranean culture, and you can imagine them all outside weeping and waiting. Lucky, 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 lucky's been unlucky, lucky's fallen out the window, he fell asleep and he fell, fell asleep and he also fell into gravity. Ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a pretty dramatic way to end a service, and rather than being encouraged, everybody is now very discouraged. Lucky has been unlucky, he's lying smashed to pieces on the floor. And then Paul comes down the steps and he takes command. And it says that he threw himself on the young man. And you might say, well, how's that meant to help? What was a health and safety issue has now become a safeguarding issue. That this <laughs> kid's fallen out the window and now Paul's throwing himself bodily on him. I mean, what on earth is going on? There is, if you know your Old Testament, there's, of course, Paul seems to be getting his inspiration from a couple of things which happened in two stories in the Old Testament, with the prophet Elijah and then with the prophet Elisha, who was Elijah's follower. With both of those prophets, there's strange stories, 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4, where they're both very connected with particular families. They have a very close relationship. These are prophets who are essentially on their own. They don't have wives, they don't have kids of their own, but they kind of adopted by families who they spend time with and are particularly invested in. And in both those families, the son dies. And in both those occasions with Elijah and Elisha, the story describes how they go into the room of the dead boy and stretch out on his body and breathe life into his body and he's raised to life. And it seems that Paul here is kind of reenacting what Elijah and Elisha did. And there's an exchange of life that as Paul throws himself onto Eutychus, there's an exchange of life. It's, of course, if you do that, if you do CPR today, you have to throw yourself bodily onto somebody. If somebody's heart packs up and you're doing CPR, it's, it's pretty intimate. You have to get onto their ribcage and, ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive, ah, 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 staying alive. And you have to get your mouth onto their mouth and breathe air into their lungs. If you want to get somebody alive who's dead, it's pretty 
up close and personal, and that's what Paul does, but it's more than just CPR that's going on here. There's a miracle that happens as poor, crumpled, lucky, is filled with life, stands up at his feet, and gather back into the arms of the church. Why? Because Christianity is about resurrection life. This is a resurrection day, and lucky is brought to new life. Now, Paul then goes back upstairs to carry on teaching and to break bread. That's a great introduction to communion. Perform a miracle like that. Whoa, we're going to break bread together now. And then he carries on. To- he hasn't learned his lesson. He just carries on talking for a few more hours. Keeps on talking till dawn. And the people are very much encouraged. They're comforted. Now we're in the resurrection business, and so we might not experience something like Eutychus falling out of a window and then being raised to life. But we should expect encouragement from unexpected angles. The church in Troas thought they were going to be encouraged by Paul's teaching, and I'm sure they were. But the biggest encouragement was the fact that this young man had fallen to his death, and now he's alive. Why? Because Jesus is in the resurrection business. And because Jesus is still in the resurrection business, we should look and expect unexpected encouragements to come our way. Last thing is that Paul then gets going, going not knowing. Verse 13, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. Paul always traveled in team, but there are moments, just as with Jesus, when Paul seems to get away, and rather than taking the shortcut or the easy way by getting on the boat, he says, I'm going to walk, I'm going to get some time on my own, lads, I'm going to use this time to be with Jesus, to pray. And so he walks across this bit of land while they catch the boat around the corner. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The next day after, we crossed to Samos, and then we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul has a particular bond with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He'd been there for three years, and he hasn't seen them for two years as he's been traveling around. And he wants to see them, but he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus itself because he knows if he stops there, he'll be stuck there, and he'll be there for months because they won't want him to go. And so he arranges to meet them a little bit further down the coast. Uh, And when he meets with them, he reminds them of his ministry And he reminds them of their call, and he also wants to say goodbye to them because he's got this sense that he's headed for the chop, and he's not sure he's ever going to see them again. And there's a quickening of the pace in the story here because it says that Paul 
wants to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. Pentecost, the great feast of Pentecost, happens seven weeks after the feast of Passover. So Paul has left Philippi, gone to Troas, and he's got a seven-week window in which to try to get Jerusalem. And there's no obvious reason for why he has this sudden haste in wanting to get to Jerusalem, because after all, he's been just gently meandering around the Aegean for the past two years, speaking many words of encouragement. Uh, but suddenly he wants to get there, and Pentecost is an important date, and it might be a bit like us saying, I really want to be home for Christmas. Paul really wants to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. But it's more than just wanting to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. He is compelled by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. We don't know quite, it's not quite yet told us why here at this point, but suddenly the pace quickens. The Spirit of God is saying, you need to be in Jerusalem. And Paul says that he is going to Jerusalem not knowing what is going to happen to him. And we could ask at that point, well, what do you mean going not knowing? Because this is the Apostle Paul. He is the great apostle. He is an extraordinary strategic thinker who plans and strategizes and makes stuff happen. And he's spirit-led. God speaks to him. And so surely he should have an understanding revelation of what's going to happen. And he's also the leader of the gang. He's the one who's in charge. He's traveling with this bunch of mates. But there's no doubt that Paul is, is in charge of this gang. So if anybody is meant to go knowing... Surely it should be Paul, but Paul says, I'm going not knowing. And I think there's encouragement in this for us as well, that sometimes as Christians we're called just to get going, even if we don't know exactly what that means, what it looks like, exactly what we are meant to do, because often God calls us into action without revealing all the details to us. The great hero of the faith, Abraham, is described in that way in Hebrews 11, that Abraham left his home going, not knowing. God called Abraham, but Abraham didn't know what that meant, where it was going to lead. And here Paul is being propelled by the Spirit of God, but doesn't know exactly what that means. Sometimes we just have to take steps of faith. It happens in our own lives. It happens in church life. There are things sometimes which we as elders feel a compelling about and say, church, we need to do this, even though we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know all the steps, but we know that God is calling us to take a step. And that does take faith because we always want to know the answers. We want to know where the steps lead to. And sometimes God doesn't tell us. Sometimes God just says, get walking. And here that's what happens with Paul. Steps of faith. Now, it's not blind faith because even as he's going not knowing, there are some things that Paul knows. One thing he knows is that he expects hardships. He says, the Holy Spirit warns me to expect hardships everywhere. Now, we're not very good with hardships, half an inch of snow, and we feel that's a terrible hardship, and the, and the, and the whole country falls to pieces. Friday morning prayer meeting, Derek Staple cycled from Kinson in his shorts. There's a man who knows how to endure a hardship. Derek, you, you win the, uh, the Robustness Award of the Year, the Rugged Award. Now, every life has its hardships. It does. But Paul is expecting hardship, which is directly linked to his faith in Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus creates uproar. If you want an easy life, don't be a Christian. But don't just settle for an easy life, because actually nothing in life which is worth attaining comes easily. 
You want to do anything which has some substance, some value to it. It's going to cost. It's going to involve hardship. It's going to involve some measure of sacrifice, some measure of difficulty. And if you're going to follow Jesus, that's going to bring you some opposition. It's going to involve some cost. And if you want to be part of this thing, if you want to be part of the Jesus people, this family, this community, you need to be ready to count the cost. It's free offer of God's grace to you, but it's not cost-free. It's going to take some hardship. Another thing that Paul says is that he is determined to finish the race. If you're not going to finish, don't bother starting. And Christians are marathon runners rather than sprinters. You know, consistent plodding is much better than a short-lived burst of glory. You might have been a Christian for the last 50 years and feel you haven't done very much, but if you have plodded faithfully, following Jesus, taking steps of faith when he's called you to, even if you haven't known what that would lead to, well, well done. That's what we're called to, finish the race. Now, why bother? Why, why is Paul so committed? Why is he prepared to face hardship? Why is he so determined to finish the race? He says, I'm committed to the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, expecting hardship and finishing the race, that might just sound like a slog, but it's so much more than that. Paul is not motivated by masochism. He's not simply looking for hardship. He's not trying to prove how tough he is. No, he's motivated by the treasure that he has found, the good news of God's grace. The good news of God's grace. What does that mean? It means that we step into the place where we know that God is everything for us, where he's sufficient for us, where we come to that place of realization that he, in his mercy, reconciles us to himself, not because of anything that we do, but all because of what he's done. It means that we can come to God with freedom and confidence and joy because we know that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our failure and weakness and sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. It means that we have confidence, that we have treasure in Jesus, that he is the pearl of great price, worth obtaining over all things. It means that we come and take the bread and the wine. It means we know we're coming to Jesus, who is at work amongst us, and that we can savor him because he is saving us and our destiny and our eternal security is sure. That's a treasure worth laying hold of. It means that Paul knows that he is richer than Caesar. He has more power than the Roman legions because God's at work in his life. And that's worth running for. That's worth sacrificing for. He's found the treasure. And there's an urgency about this. This is why it says in verse 21 that he has declared to both Jews and Greeks they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus this morning, this is a must. It's going to cost you. You need to do it because this is the treasure which is worth finding above everything else. And so we're to take courage this morning. Take courage because, yes, Jesus creates an uproar where the gospel is proclaimed, riots follow. We're to take courage when that happens. We're to be encouraged because we are resurrection people. We're to be encouraging, because we need to encourage one another in our spiritual fights. And we're to take courage to go, even when we don't know exactly what that means. Why? Because we have received the good news of God's grace. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I thank you that this is Resurrection Day.
And I pray that we would find courage. We would take courage and we would find encouragement in you. Lord, I pray that now as we come to worship, as we come to take bread and wine, Lord, that we would be encouraged by you. Spirit of God, would you work in us to encourage our hearts? And I pray that we would encourage one another. I pray that we'd speak faith into each other. And Lord, when you call us, when you call us to go, we're not quite sure what that means. When it feels like going, not knowing, I pray that we'd have courage for that as well. That we'd uh, lay hold of you. We'd be determined to finish the race because we know that the prize we have are obtaining in Christ Jesus is valuable and precious above all else. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that they'd know the encouragement of God, resurrection encouragement in their hearts. And Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know you that they would turn in faith to you because it's, it's what must happen because you are the prize worth obtaining over all else. Pray you do that today, King Jesus. Amen.